High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must remember A kiss is just a kiss A smile is Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Today, we'll pick up our story where the last one ended, with Polly Platt driving her little white convertible across the country alone to pursue her dream of designing movies. After the sudden death of her first husband, 20-year-old Polly was determined to never love anyone ever again. But almost right away... Polly met the man who would become her second husband, the father of her two daughters, and her collaborator for over a decade. In this episode, we'll talk about how Polly Platt hooked up with Peter Bogdanovich. Together, Peter and Polly spent the 1960s submerging themselves into cinephilia, meeting, interviewing, and befriending some of the Hollywood legends whose movies they were obsessed with, including Fritz Lang, Sam Fuller, and John Ford. We'll hear, in Polly's own words, how Peter and Polly then moved together into making movies, and how they formed the creative partnership that would lead to some of the greatest American films of the 1970s. So join us, won't you, for part two of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. In Manhattan, Polly first went to live with Peggy Steffens, her best friend from Skidmore, and then she spent a few nights bunking with Jules Fisher, her friend from Carnegie Tech. Fisher has since become a legendary lighting designer, but back then he was, like Polly, just starting out. I had the cheapest apartment on 10th Street and Avenue A in New York. And just before then, Polly had called and said, she said, I have terrible cold. Could she stay at my place for a week or so? I said, fine, of course. Come on over. Ivor David Balding was the head of a summer theater upstate, I think upstate New York. Mm -hmm. It was a well-known summer stock theater. And he called me and said, I need a costume designer. And I said, I have one here in my bed. 
Polly went to meet with Balding and was offered the job, but the producer told her she should also meet with his Summerstock director, who was working as a film programmer at the Art House Theater, The New Yorker. So Polly went there next to meet the man whose name she had mistakenly written down as Mr. McDonovich. Peter was waiting in a room right next to the noisy movie projector. He was wearing a red-checked shirt with an open collar, a shapeless tweed jacket, light khaki trousers, and had a small but adorable paunch. I liked him immediately. When I told him he could go down off-Broadway and see a play I had designed the sets and costumes for, he drew himself up self-importantly and announced, I never go to the theater. This made me laugh. The arrogance of the man. While Polly was still in his office, Peter took a call from the Museum of Modern Art, who told him they were publishing a monograph he had written on Orson Welles. Peter hung up the phone, excited, and asked Polly to go get a cup of coffee with him to celebrate. This is how Polly wrote about their first quasi-date. I sat on a banquette. Behind me was a long mirror. Peter sat opposite me, and as we drank coffee and smoked Marlboro cigarettes, I noticed that he often looked at himself in the mirror as he talked. He ran his fingers through his luxurious hair, the color of dark mink. It amused me that he looked at himself so often. I found it endearing that he was so vain. And I remember thinking that he was the kind of man who would not die on me. I told him a bit of my past. I saw that Peter was really interested in me. I was quite an unusual type of girl for New York City. Very arty, long hair, no makeup. Wearing Navajo boots and a turquoise-studded Navajo belt. I must have presented quite a picture. A young widow, quite shattered by my young husband's death. A few nights later, Peter asked Polly out to a movie. Alfred Hitchcock's I Confess. In the theater, Peter lit two cigarettes and handed one to her. Something she had only ever seen done in the movies. He was on my right side, and as I reached over to take my cigarette, I could feel how soft his lips were. He was really a beautiful man, and I thought about what it would be like to kiss him. He was wonderful. I was smitten. As we were walking along the sidewalk that night, he told me he was going to marry me. Neither of them lived alone, so after the movie, they went back to Balding's empty office. And after he read to me from Dylan Thomas's short stories, we made love. I was in heaven. He was everything I wanted. He was alive, strong, arrogant, idealistic, serious about his work, talented, and charming. Peter was a year younger than Polly, and he had studied acting with Stella Adler before becoming a critic and film programmer. His parents, Herma and Borislav, were Serbian immigrants. Borislav was a painter, and Herma made beautiful handmade frames for his paintings. This work was part of the way she took care of her husband, supporting her family by literally creating supports for Borislav's work, But it wasn't the half of it. As Herma explained to Polly on one of their first meetings, there are separate rules for the artist. They deserve special treatment. An artist is like an animal that is half cat and half dog, constantly snarling and hissing at itself. Polly saw that Peter, like his father, was an artist, and she resolved that, like Herma, she would devote herself to taking care of the artist she loved. Peter and Polly got an apartment together in the fall of 1961, and Polly disappeared into his world of cinephilia. I had loved movies, and here I met this man who also loved movies. So I would say it was a marriage of minds. I had already fortunately seen a lot of films, because I don't think he would have talked to me at all if I didn't know who these film directors were that he was talking about. 
they got in the habit of marking up the TV guide so they wouldn't miss showings of movies from directors they loved, from Sam Fuller to Edgar G. Ulmer. Their little apartment became a salon of sorts, where they would host screenings of 16mm films borrowed from scholar William K. Everson, projected onto a blank wall for an audience of friends and fellow cinephiles, including the critics Andrew Saris and Dwight MacDonald, and their plus ones, which, one night, included Hannah Arendt. Over time, Saris would become the American critic most associated with the auteur theory, which holds that though hundreds of people might contribute to the actual making of a film, the director is the true author of a movie, and each movie a director makes, no matter the circumstances of its making, carries that director's unique artistic signature. Auteur theory changed the way movies were talked about and thought of, in an industry where previously it had been presumed that producers, like Irving Thalberg or Samuel Goldwyn, were the creative geniuses from which everything else flowed. A new generation of directors, Peter Bogdanovich among them, would start working in Hollywood at a moment in which the press and the industry were eager to isolate directors as the great artists commanding crews of technicians who served only that one man's vision. And it was almost always a man's vision. In the early 1960s, there were no women directing movies in Hollywood. The only female film directors to have joined the Directors Guild to that point were Dorothy Arzner, who had retired in the mid-1940s, and Ida Lupino, who hadn't made a feature since 1953. So auteur theory was, maybe unwittingly, but still, inherently sexist, because it privileged the male director's genius over any contribution a woman could make to a film. When Polly and Peter were living in New York, watching movies in the apartment with Saris and the rest of their friends, Polly fully believed in auteur theory. She spoke fluent French from her childhood in Europe, and she was able to translate articles from the French magazine Cahiers de Cinéma, the true crucible of auteurism. It was because of such translations that American filmmakers such as Jerry Lewis and Howard Hawks discovered that they were being reappraised as artists. And in the States, university and museum film societies started to crop up to study the work of the Hollywood auteurs. So Polly was totally embedded in the cult of the auteur, even though the theory diminished the kinds of contributions she herself would go on to make as a crew member on other people's movies including Peter's. In a very early profile of Bogdanovich published in the LA Times, Peter explained what the auteur theory meant to him. Quote, All those people who have credits at the beginning of a picture are vitally important, but the last name is the director's. It's his signature. A man, not a machine, makes a movie, and that man is the director. There is one vision, and that is his. I think everybody on the set knows this. Later, Peter's movies would be marketed as a film by Peter Bogdanovich. My mom and I had talked about that later in life, and she was like, that was a mistake. <laughs> because this is Polly's youngest daughter, Sashi. She felt like it really did prop up the idea of this auteur, which there are certain people who are auteurs, but but they still need help, <laughs> you know? John Ford, Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, all these people were her heroes and my dad's heroes. Obviously, people change, right? So when she was in her 20s, she, she met all these people, and then she did these films and then all these things. And so she still saw them as great men, but I think that she realized maybe how damaging the auteur thing is and or can be. It ignores... The women behind the men, you know, usually. <laughs> Polly had become so devoted to her life of cinephilia with Peter, and so quickly, that to her oldest friends, it was as if she had literally disappeared into the man in her life. 
uh, I didn't hear from her for a while. And, and we had these gaps, didn't mean anything. Whenever we met again, it was as if we'd never been apart. And I said, well, let's have dinner. She said, well, I, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? She said, well, I'm not. And then she told me all about Peter and the relationship and how they love they were and, and their common interest in film. And he was quite brilliant and is quite brilliant, but also difficult and uh, arrogant, if I may. And he'll probably hate if he hears this. Uh, but he was brilliant. And I, I now spent my life working with artists, and I know there are ones that are difficult to deal with, but they're worth it because they are good artists. And there are others that aren't worth it, whether they're good or not. It's the pain can be so good. So she said, well, I have to cook for him, but you can come up here, she said. I said, great, what, tell me when. And I realized she was in a relationship very soon in which he was very demanding. So I went up to dinner, and I remember him standing in this very nice apartment against the mantel of a fireplace, and we were talking about film, and he said, I'm going to direct my first film before I'm 25. And he must have been 21 at that time. I said, well, how do you, why, how do you? He said, Orson Welles did Citizen Kane when he was 25. So that's my slight clue to arrogance. Uh, and I said, I said, wonderful. At that time, Polly didn't see Peter's arrogance and determination as negatives. Everything Polly and Peter did at this point was designed to achieve one goal, to turn Peter Bogdanovich into a major Hollywood director. We used to lie in bed in our low-rent West Side apartment. And I would listen while Peter worried that his name was too long to go on the movie marquees when he became a movie director. He suggested Bogdan, while I pointed out that Joseph von Sternberg, Otto Preminger, and Eric von Stroheim had long names, and they did all right. We saw literally hundreds of films at home and at the seedy theaters on 42nd Street, which played all the films noir. It was fun to watch the audience, which were winos and derelicts, talking back to the films if they didn't like them. We got a real lesson about film and saw that the truly great films caught the attention of this difficult-to-please group of moviegoers. We vowed that our films would play at 42nd Street. Note the words that Polly uses here. We vowed that our films would play 42nd Street. Autor theory aside, Polly saw the dream of filmmaking as a collaborative one. And even if it was just Peter Bogdanovich's name on the marquee, she would consider his films to be her films, too. This is Polly's friend, Barbara Boyle. Oh, she was very much in love with him. And, uh, well, of, of course, in Peter's capacity... You know, Peter was always very, in, as far as I know, still is, uh, very uh, interested in Peter and his career. And Polly was very interested in Peter and his career. Peter had written an essay about Hollywood, which he was having trouble finding a home for. One night, at a gala dinner for the premiere of Hawks' film, Hatari, Polly sat next to and spent the night arguing with Esquire magazine editor Harold Hayes. Polly convinced Peter to send his essay to Hayes, who agreed to publish it. After that, Esquire began sending Peter and Polly to Hollywood and to location shoots so they could interview the likes of John Ford, Jack Lemmon, and Tony Randall. These were Peter's assignments, and they carried only Peter's byline. Peter flattered these living legends by knowing everything about their movies. But in addition to operating the reel-to-reel -reel sound recorder, taking notes, and occasionally throwing out questions of her own, Polly's people skills were invaluable. Peter, uh, of late, has been kind of downplaying her, her role in things. Have you noticed that? 
This is Fred Ruse, a casting director and producer of The Godfather, American Graffiti, and other legendary films. You know, all through those that marriage, when Peter was interviewing all those filmmakers, I think she she was probably invaluable in allowing him to get close to those people and and be forthcoming to him. Slowly, the pair started turning their idols into their friends. In 1963, they went to L.A. to interview Jerry Lewis, who was filming The Nutty Professor. In the process, Polly befriended Lewis's wife, Patty. Patty told me that she knew that Jerry was having an affair with his nutty professor ingenue, Stella Stevens. But she didn't care because he was home in bed with her every night. I told her that Peter and I weren't married... Peter was very upset with me for telling her that, and he decided to get married then and there. They had the ceremony back in New York, at City Hall, in the fall of 1963. Now that Polly was Peter's wife, under the eyes of God and the law circa 1963, she was expected to put her husband's career ahead of her own, to be Peter's helpmate, and to do whatever she could to make his dreams come true. But Polly wasn't begrudgingly going along with what was expected of her, the way her own mother apparently had. She felt that she and Peter were real collaborators on the stories for Esquire magazine that carried only his byline. And she believed that when doors finally opened to allow them to make movies, they would be partners in that field, too, working together to make their shared dreams come true. She believed, like Peter's mother that a wife had a role to play in making a creative husband's life easier. I was sure that he would become a director quickly, very early on in his career. That was exactly what I wanted for him. I was in love with him, and I had a very strong instinct that if he didn't get what he wanted, which was to be a movie director with a name that was recognizable to every household, like Alfred Hitchcock, then he would be a very unhappy man indeed. So I was willing to do almost anything that would help him to get what he wanted. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It was Frank Tashlin, the director of many of the Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis comedies the couple adored, who encouraged them to take the next step. If Peter wants to be a director, Tashlin said, You should damn well move to Los Angeles. They drove across the country in a 1952 Ford that Polly had bought for $250, taking only their dog, a cooler of food so they wouldn't have to stop at restaurants, and their black-and-white TV. In Los Angeles, the couple found a ranch house surrounded by trees and flowers on Satakoy, a busy street deep in the San Fernando Valley. They collected unemployment and painted the house while they looked for jobs. Polly was sometimes reduced to shoplifting from the grocery store. Eventually, Polly was hired by Larry Edmonds, a cinema bookshop that still exists on Hollywood Boulevard, 
to type up copies of screenplays for classic films like Citizen Kane, which the store would then mimeograph and sell to fans. Polly learned much about screenplay construction doing these transcriptions. Peter found work writing for TV Guide, the beloved Bible they had scoured every week, so as not to miss a late-night showing of a deep cut from one of their favorite directors. The gig came with a press pass, so the pair started going to screenings for free. And now, they were in closer proximity to more of the directors who had made the films they loved from 10, 20, 30, even 40 years before, such as Don Siegel, Sam Fuller, and Fritz Lang. Lang had been one of the key figures of German Expressionism, directing, amongst other things, the super-influential silent sci-fi film Metropolis. After fleeing the Nazis in the early 1930s, Lang ended up in Hollywood, where his movies like Scarlet Street and The Big Heat helped the genre of film noir coalesce around the theme of the violence inherent in love and lust. By the time Polly and Peter met Lang, he was virtually blind and retired. He was benefiting somewhat from the French-led auteur mania. Jean-Luc Godard had cast Lang to play himself in contempt, but he was hardly living in luxury. He was a lonely man, with only his secretary living with him. He liked to drink martinis and often saluted his stuffed toy monkey, whom he called, for some reason, Peter. Lang's films were, I thought, brilliant for the most part, but they were so evil that I hated them even as I admired them. He was an evil man. I found out about this one weekend when he invited Peter and me to spend the weekend with him at his place in Palm Springs. Peter and I were very excited to visit him there. We drove out to Palm Springs to discover that his place was a decidedly decrepit motel surrounding a kidney-shaped pool. He was a good friend of the owner of the place, and I guess she gave him a deal. Anyway, there we were, his guests. He took us to the cheapest restaurants, and as I watched him write down every expense in the little book he carried with him always, I began to realize that he was actually probably poor, or on very limited funds. I felt very badly about accepting his hospitality, but we had no money, so what could we do? One day we were having a discussion in a pancake house about the international news in America. I had seen some footage of some riots against American Marines. I was very much of a dove, anti the American involvement in Vietnam, and Lang was a hawk about Vietnam. He said that the American news could have cut the two pieces of film together, making it look as if the Marines had shot at the unarmed blacks. I got pretty heated about his, I thought, old-fashioned and paranoid notions of how we showed the news in the United States. When he accidentally called me Patty during his argument with me, I corrected him, saying that my name was Polly. I was so upset by the argument and his forgetting my name that I got up from the table and went to my room in the motel. Peter stayed with Lang. I remember thinking that Peter was probably angry with me for arguing with the great man. I felt sorry, too, but I felt that he was wrong. Later that day, I went alone to Lang's room to apologize to him. He was very gracious about it, and we became friends again. Weeks later, Lang called me very hush-hush and don't tell Peter, and asked me to come visit him for breakfast alone with him at his house. I went, telling Peter the truth about Lang's asking me not to tell him. We were both very curious about what he would have to say to me. Lang waited until after they had finished breakfast, and then he dropped the bomb. Polly, I don't want to talk to you about how much your husband loves you or not, but you must remember, when you and I had an argument and you ran out, that Peter stayed with the great director, me, rather than side with you, his wife. This is something for you to think about, no? I never told Peter what Lang said because I knew it would hurt Peter. And of course, I knew what Lang said was true. But that is why it was so evil. 
It put a strange barrier between Peter and me. Years later, when I told Orson Welles that story, he said Lang was Iago. After Lang's unwelcome intervention, Polly began to realize the extent to which her entire life was wrapped up in Peter. And since Peter's entire life was wrapped up in the movies, particularly older Hollywood movies and the men who made them, she had no friends in Hollywood of her own. It was fun and thrilling to get an invite to Jerry Lewis's house, where Jerry's wife Patty, noticing that Polly always wore the same dress, would pass along her hand-me-down clothes. It was a dream for Polly and Peter to go to a Dodgers game with Cary Grant, although Polly suspected they got those invites partially because 60-something Cary's new wife, 20-something Diane Cannon, wanted to socialize with people of her own generation. But this multi-generational couple was the exception, not the rule. Much of Polly and Peter's social life revolved around hosting dinners in their backyard for old, great men with big personalities who did not have the kinds of creative partnerships with their wives that Polly believed she had with Peter. And when these great men came to dinner on Satakoy Street, sometimes the generation gap was all too evident. Howard Hawks came and complained bitterly about the long-haired flower children at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which was going on during the time of his visit to our house. Hawks announced that the flower children should have been shot. I was shocked at his radically right-wing notions and said, You know, Howard, they have a point. We have no business in Vietnam. I looked at Peter to see what he would say. Not wanting to contradict Hawks, Peter said nothing. In an interview in 1993, Polly would describe that incident as the moment she, quote, stopped loving Peter. But it was easier to have hindsight about her marriage than it was to do anything to change the relationship in the moment. Witness this anecdote from Polly's memoir. One day while driving to the house of some famous director, I complained to Peter. We don't have any friends who aren't famous. There's no one anywhere near our age, either. This lack of friends my age who weren't famous was to come to haunt me later. After I made Peter go away, and I was left alone and virtually friendless. So, my trepidation about it was warranted. Polly and Peter would soon make a friend who was even younger than they were. Today... Frank Marshall is known as one of the most successful producers in modern Hollywood history. From Raiders of the Lost Ark to the Jurassic and Bourne films, he's had a hand in major blockbusters for over four decades. In December 1966, Frank was a 20-year-old college student, somewhat reluctantly tagging along with his parents to a party at John Ford's house. I was standing at the bottom of the stairs and down the stairs came this very cute girl come bouncing down the stairs and said, hi, I'm Polly. And I said, oh, hi, I'm Frank. And she said, oh, isn't it great? Just all these incredible actors and people here. And I said, yeah, you know, and she started pointing out people. And she was just so excited about being there with all these movie people. You know, I, I was actually trying to uh, see if she was available, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> And uh, she said, well, if you love movies so much, you know, you've got to meet my husband. And I said, oh, really, your husband? Well, uh, okay. <laughs> A little disappointed, but she said, come on, he's right in here. So we went in the next room, and there was this tall, very handsome, tall, uh, dark-haired guy in the corner holding court. And it was Peter. And um, he had, you know, this circle of people around him, and he wanted to be a director. And I was so impressed with this. And Polly was kind of the same. They, they, were, they were like one. They were like a unit. Frank Marshall would go on to work on Bogdanovich's first seven feature films. By the time they all met at this party, Polly and Peter had already gotten their toes wet through Roger Corman who they had met at a screening of a Jacques Demy film. The couple had made an impression on Corman 
and he soon called and offered them jobs. Polly and Peter were hardly the obvious choices to rewrite The Wild Angels, a biker flick built to showcase two second-generation Hollywood stars, Peter Fonda and Nancy Sinatra. But on a Roger Corman production, it was commonplace to be thrown into the deep end in order to learn how to swim. After handing in their rewrite, Polly and Peter were brought on as location managers, then as production assistants. Polly was excited to take the jobs, seeing them as the necessary steps up the ladder that would lead them, or at least Peter, into the director's chair. In fact, Peter would become a director before the Wild Angels wrapped. Corman hired him to direct the film's second unit, which would typically comprise insert and pickup shots, but in this case included all of that, plus a chase sequence featuring Bruce Dern. In addition to stunt doubling for Nancy Sinatra, Polly became Peter's de facto producer, which she learned how to do by doing it. She remembered one breakfast meeting at which Corman threw her into the deep end. Roger looked at me ready with my yellow pad and pencil and gave me a long list of tasks that I had absolutely no idea how to do. But I learned fast. He told me to go and buy 5,000 feet of Kodak movie film 5254 emulsion. I wrote it down, not understanding what the hell emulsion was. He said to get the costumes used in the chase sequence from Western Costume Company in Hollywood, get the Primo motorcycles and their owners, and almost as an afterthought, Roger looked at us and said, You understand the 180-degree line rule, don't you? Neither of us did. He pulled out the placemat under his locks and bagels and drew out an explanation of the very holy, essential, and most confusing principle of shooting a movie. Hardly waiting to see if we understood, he stood up and wished us luck, paid the bill, and left us to our own devices. We had a safe place to make mistakes and learn from them. Roger was happy with the sequences we shot, and we moved a step up in his estimation, I think. Anyway, he offered us another film. First, Corman entrusted the pair to make something new out of a Russian sci-fi flick he had bought, hoping to recycle its impressive space special effects. Polly and Peter inserted these sequences into new material they shot in the Pacific Ocean, featuring an aging Mamie Van Doren as a mermaid, and voila, Voyage to the Planet of Prehistoric Women was born. Peter was credited as director on this film under the pseudonym Derek Thomas. Polly was credited by name only as production coordinator. At the time, she didn't realize she deserved an actual producer's credit. As she said later, My original job when I started making movies was producing. And I produced those movies. I realize that now. I had no credit at all, but I produced targets. I produced... The Gill Women of Venus, or whatever it was called. I literally was producing the pictures with Peter, as far as what we call a creative producer is concerned. Having exceeded Corman's very low expectations for that experiment, Bogdanovich and Platt were his first call when he found himself with another dud of a film that needed recrafting. We did a whole episode about targets in our previous series on Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. But here is Polly's version of how she and Peter got involved with the movie. Roger Corman handed us a not-scary horror movie called The Terror, which had Jack Nicholson in it in a small part, and Boris Karloff as the star. Roger explained to us that since Karloff owed him two days shooting from being overpaid on another movie, that we should use him for those two free days— Again, we would shoot new footage and cut in this new footage with the old movie and make another movie out of the terror. We screened the film for ourselves and walked out dejected. Peter was devastated at how bad the movie was, creaky, antiquated, and we both despaired at making anything at all interesting out of it. What to do? I knew that the only thing that was really important was that we make a good movie from a bad one. Our adored President Kennedy had been assassinated senselessly. 
We were watching bloody Vietnam War TV news every night while we ate our dinner. Thinking about it from a very personal point of view, I decided that modern horror was unmotivated murder. A person who knocks on your door and shoots you for no reason whatsoever. The boy next door who suddenly loses it and starts shooting up the neighborhood. We had lunch in New York City with our friend Harold Hayes, the dapper editor of Esquire magazine. We told him of our thinking about modern horror, and he told us about the Austin, Texas Tower murderer. He suggested that such a character would be a perfect model for what we were thinking. Accepting his advice, we went to work on that screenplay with great enthusiasm. Peter came out of the shower one morning with the brilliant idea that Boris Karloff in our movie should play an aging horror picture star who sees that he's no longer frightening anymore, a dinosaur, speaking our message loud and clear. That way we could start the movie with a short sequence that would be cut from the footage of The Terror. Boris Karloff could play himself, looking at this creaky, old-fashioned horror film he's made, and announcing with great gravitas that he's going to retire. He says these things to the hopeful young director of the next film Karloff was to make. I suggested to Peter that he himself play the part of the young director, since he had been an actor before he tried directing. I had a strong desire to get Peter to act because it would make him more like Orson Welles, God forbid. How could I have been so senseless? Well, the die was cast, and we wrote the story together. Polly was credited as co-writer of the story of Targets, and as far as I can tell, she was the first person to both serve as a film's co-writer and its art director or production designer, since William Cameron Menzies did both on Alice in Wonderland in 1933. Certainly, she was the first woman to get credit for both roles on the same film in Hollywood. Polly's gender was relevant, not just because she was the first, but also she was pregnant with her first child while the film was in production. At Carnegie, she had been made to feel that women couldn't physically build sets or even swing a hammer. Now, she was doing all that and more while gestating a baby. On a conventional Hollywood film, typically a production designer would oversee the look of the film while the heads of the departments, the costume designer, the art director, the prop manager, would take charge of execution. But on a low-budget production like Targets, Polly did pretty much everything. She found many of the film's locations by driving around the almost apocalyptic, semi-industrial, semi-suburban environs in which she lived, including the Van Nuys drive-in theater that would provide the setting for the film's climax. Mindful of the film's limited budget and wanting to ground the modern horror in modern reality as much as possible, Polly used as many real locations as she could and let the story guide what she needed to build. I wondered, what would the house of a boy gone mad look like? I found an innocuous ranch-style house with everything but the white picket fence. I designed the interior of the house on stage, trying to make the ugly 60s decor so awful that it might provoke a young man to murder. I put these awful San Fernando Valley things in there. In those days, the huge ceramic leopards were very popular, and on coffee tables there were ostrich feathers. There was a lot going on that I had seen that I thought would make a murderer out of me. Frank Marshall would get his first credit on Targets as Peter's assistant, although he most closely worked with Polly. I was good at finding things and solving problems. And so she would give me an assignment to do and I would, you know, be inspired to do the best that I could and, and get it done. And we just established this incredible friendship and bond, and she really became my mentor. Both Polly and Frank made cameos in Targets, Frank as the movie theater ticket taker, and Polly as a pregnant extra, her isolated belly passing before the camera. By the time Peter was cutting the film with editor Verna Fields, 
on a moviola in the Sadakoi house, Polly was about to burst. She gave birth to Antonia Bogdanovich on November 22, 1967. The director, Sam Fuller, who had suggested to Polly and Peter the drive-in confrontation that would become the ending of Targets, shot home movies of the happy couple and their baby. At one point in his footage, Fuller pans his camera up the new mother's bare legs, which were one of Polly's most attractive assets, and which at that time she often displayed in short shorts or skirts worn with oversized t-shirts or classic Breton-striped shirts. In the typically told narrative about the end of Polly and Peter's marriage, Polly is presented as the older, frumpier woman who was rejected for 20-year-old sex goddess Sybil Shepherd. Polly Platt was older than Sybil, but she was extremely attractive in her own right. And when you look at these home movies, you can tell that Sam Fuller, who had his own very young, very beautiful wife, was obviously appreciative. So, because of Polly, I met Fritz Lang and proceeded to have an affair with Fritz Lang. Wow. How was it? Yeah, I still remember it. (laughs) I mean, he was younger than I am now. Mm -hmm. But we had this affair. This is Polly's friend, Peggy Steffens. In the mid-1960s, Peggy began to collaborate with Joe Sarno, a softcore and later hardcore filmmaker who was known in some circles as the Ingmar Bergman of porn. But in the meantime, somehow I got involved with Joe and I had to tell Fritz Lang I couldn't see him anymore. Amazing. And he, he was upset about it. But anyway, so I move in with Joe in 67. Polly wants me to be in Targets because I'm her best friend. Joe is this other horrible person, possessive whatever, and I realized if I left Joe to go to Hollywood, that would be the end. So I had to tell Polly that. And she said, don't worry. There'll always be a Hollywood, but there may not be a Joe. Peggy married Joe and worked with him as an actress and a costume designer until Joe's death in 2010. Over their 40 years together, they had a truly collaborative marriage, with lots of ups and downs and certainly sacrifice on Peggy's part. But they stayed together, even while working on blue movies, for the entirety of their marriage. Polly believed that she and Peter were building a partnership that would span a similar length of time. But as far back as targets, there were signs that her marriage was not an equal partnership. New motherhood was an added complication. Having a child was, I now know, the beginning of what would be that sad end to Peter's and my marriage. Antonia was not an easy baby. She woke up and cried periodically throughout the night. Peter was only doing what he had learned from his parents. He never got up to feed Antonia for me or walk her to sleep. So I would get no sleep at night, and then I became irritable, nervous, and tense. Not good for me. Not good for the baby. I was a bit stunned at what having a child did to my intellectual and artistic life. I began to believe that I would never again read another book. I began to resent the way Peter just wanted our life to continue the way it had been. Going to movies every night and working at home during the day on screenplay ideas. It became less and less possible as Antonia got older and more active. I wanted to be home with my baby and I felt torn in pieces, trying to be the old playmate with Peter and be a mother at the same time. I now know that I should have made him help me with the baby, forced him to get up and be a father. Hindsight. So useless. 
In the little house on Satakoy in the late 1960s, Polly and Peter were building a new family and birthing a new career. At the same time, Polly's parents were dying. In the middle of the Wild Angel shoot, Vivian passed, and Polly went to Massachusetts to help her brother deal with the mess their mentally ill mother had left behind. Three years later, after shooting targets, she learned that her dad was on the decline. Colonel Platt, now emphysema-plagued and wheelchair-bound, moved in with Peter and Polly. His only request was that Polly make sure he had enough vodka to drink, which she did until he too died. Distracted by all of these family issues as she was, Polly was still extremely ambitious on behalf of her husband, and she believed that targets should not be released through Roger Corman's usual B-movie drive-in channels. Polly believed Targets was Peter's first, last, and best chance to get the New York film critics to take him seriously. And she believed they wouldn't take Targets seriously if it were released like a typical Corman movie. Polly had been expected to take an associate producer credit on Targets, but she traded her credit to David O. Selznick's son, Daniel, so that he would help them find a new distributor. In the end, Paramount bought targets from a thrilled corpsman who doubled his investment and didn't have to spend any money promoting the movie. Polly was thrilled, too. She was happy to relinquish her producer credit if it would ensure a bigger and better release for the movie. But it didn't. Targets, a film about an assassin, was poised to debut in the midst of a wave of gun violence that Americans had never seen before. The film may have been inspired by the 1966 Austin Tower shootings, but 1968 saw a wave of assassinations of prominent people, including MLK Jr. and Robert Kennedy by lone gunmen, which seems to have spooked Paramount. The studio added an on-screen disclaimer at the beginning of Targets, essentially requesting that audience members not try this at home while also mounting a publicity campaign playing on the viewers' fear that they could be the next target of an indiscriminate shooter. After test screenings in Chicago and New York in August, they waited another month to release the movie on a single screen in Beverly Hills. Paramount's publicity called it an exclusive engagement, but it was tantamount to a token release. Some of the biggest hits of 1968, including 2001 A Space Odyssey, Planet of the Apes, and Rosemary's Baby, captured something in the zeitgeist and were embraced by youth culture. Every bit as relevant to the modern world as any other movie released in 1968, Targets did not catch fire in the same way. But critics gave it rave reviews. The trade papers, Variety and The Hollywood Reporter, loved the film, which was important for legitimizing Peter as a director in the eyes of the industry. Saturday Review called Targets almost Hitchcockian, and the Los Angeles Times called it one of the most important films of the year. It was reviews like this that made Targets a success, insofar as it had accomplished what Polly had hoped. It put her husband on the map as a director to watch. In fact, it's remarkable today to take note of how many of the reviews included the name Bogdanovich in the headline, given that this was not a name most newspaper readers would have known until reading the review. It was like his stardom was made manifest by headline writers before it even happened. And it hadn't fully happened yet. Doors were open that had previously been closed, but he still had a long way to go. Paramount had signed Bogdanovich to a one-picture deal, and Polly wanted Peter to adapt a novel she had had her eyes on for a while, Larry McMurtry's The Last Picture Show, which Polly had read on the recommendation of actor Sal Mineo. 
The novel told the story of a dying town in rural Texas and the existential crises and sexual indiscretions of multiple generations of locals. Everything that's in the book, the taking off of the bra, hanging it on the car mirror, the hands that were cold and the girl who would only let him touch her tits, just barely getting your hand up this girl's leg, were experiences I'd had as a young woman. There were all these movies about this, but they were all fake. There were parts of a woman's body that were completely off-limits in American movies. Polly thought the film needed to be as frank and nuanced about sexuality as the novel had been. And that hadn't been possible for most of the history of Hollywood movies. But the commercial success of movies like Blow Up, Contempt, and Belle du Jour, foreign imports that contained casual nudity, had pushed American filmmakers and the Hollywood censors to accommodate changing attitudes. Finally, Polly thought, they could make the last picture show the way it needed to be made. The timing might have been right, but Paramount passed on the last picture show and let the contract run out without letting Peter and Polly make a film. Polly was infuriated, but they quickly shifted gears, using grant money from the American Film Institute to make a documentary about one of the great classical Hollywood filmmakers they had gotten to know as journalists. John Ford was wrapping up a vast career and also had a fascinating, borderline frightening personality, which Polly and Peter had witnessed firsthand when interviewing him on the set of his second-to-last feature, Cheyenne Autumn. There, Polly had intently cataloged Ford's eccentric, and sometimes bullying behavior. She had taken note of the way he habitually chewed on a white handkerchief all day until the thing was stained brown from the tobacco juice leaking out of his ever-present chew. She had watched Ford go out of his way to put Peter on the spot and embarrass him. She had been at a dinner where he forced actress Carol Baker to cut all the fat off of his steak and then berated her for missing a spot. None of this diminished Ford in Polly's mind. In fact, seeing the domineering Ford up close and personal had the opposite effect. The great John Ford got results. Now I could see how he made his pictures. By charming and then intimidating people. Peter and Polly managed to convince the irascible Ford to travel with them to Monument Valley, Utah, where he had filmed many westerns, to be interviewed on camera. The couple's previous experience with Ford had shown them how protective he was of his image. When Polly had been taking notes during the interview for the Esquire story back on the set of Cheyenne Autumn, every time Ford was about to tell a juicy story, he would lean over and physically take the pen out of Polly's hand. When it came time to actually shoot the documentary with him, Polly knew there was a risk that Ford could stop cooperating at any time, and she was determined not to do anything that could mess it up. It was a monumental task, getting Ford to Monument Valley and then getting him to talk about his films. We took Ford on a train most of the way, and then we went by car. In the car... I needed to stop to go to the bathroom and was afraid to ask Peter to stop the car with Ford in the front seat passenger side. I was in the back seat alone and just pulled my panties to the side and peed on the floor of the rental car. I was so afraid of Ford's displeasure. This anecdote is almost unbelievable, but when you read it in the context of Polly's memoir, it feels like it's in character. It's rolling over for the polio shot but a lot more humiliating. In both cases, Polly was showing that her experience of intimidating men suggested they preferred women who didn't complain, even or especially if not complaining, meant the woman would suffer pain or personal humiliation. Wondering if Polly could have exaggerated or embellished the rental car story, I described it to Rachel Abramowitz, the journalist who much later wrote the definitive magazine profile of Polly, 
and became friends with her. That totally sounds like Polly. I mean, Polly had a kind of masochistic, not masochistic is too strong a word, but it kind of like, I'll do anything to get the project made. And, you know, it's sort of like a little bit like, I will subvert my own most basic needs so we will not in any way derail this moment with John Ford. That, I just don't think she lied. Despite all of Polly's efforts to avoid making Ford upset, he still proved to be an antagonistic documentary subject. Ford pretended not to hear or understand any of Peter's questions. He was monosyllabic, awful. It went on and on like this for about half an hour. He would just grunt and cock his head and answer grudgingly the questions Peter asked off camera. Later, Peter began to cry in our room, and I told him that he had captured the true Ford, that the interview was perfect just the way it was. It was brilliant and funny. So that is the way we left it, and it is still a classic. Actually, that is not the way Peter left it. In 2006, Bogdanovich recut directed by John Ford to include some new interviews with people like Steven Spielberg and footage of Peter himself speaking to the camera from an editing room. I wanted to see the original version of the film, the one Polly thought they were making. Though it's not commercially available as of mid-2020, I was able to view it at the American Film Institute. The original version of the documentary begins with several minutes of clips from Ford's films, many of which involve strong and feisty women, such as Maureen O'Hara slapping John Wayne after he kisses her in The Quiet Man. The doc is narrated by Orson Welles, and much of the narration, presumably written by Peter and Polly, is brilliant. At one point positioning Ford's filmography as both a history of America in miniature and a self-reflexive history of Hollywood, with each new John Ford film talking back to one or more previous John Ford films. But what you remember from the documentary is exactly what Polly predicted we'd remember. The image of Ford, seated in front of the desert backdrop, in his Dodgers cap and thick glasses, chomping on a cigar and staring witheringly at Peter while offering non-answers to his questions. How did you shoot that? With a camera. Can I ask you what, what particular element about the Western appealed to you from the beginning? I wouldn't know. Would you agree that the point of uh, Fort Apache was that uh, tradition, the tradition of the Army was more important than one individual? Cut. In the end credits crawl, Peter gave himself sole directing and writing credit. Polly got no credit. By the time Peter released the film, he and Polly were no longer together. Still, with its centerpiece interview in the can before Polly and Peter split, it seems safe to say that directed by John Ford is the product of a process that kept moving forward because Polly was there to build Peter back up when he was down, to supply the missing pieces to fill the cracks around his talent and ambition so that he could present himself to the world as fully formed. This is what a lot of women have done for their partners, what a lot of wives have done in Hollywood and other creative industries for a long, long time. So Polly Platt had reason to believe that her role in this partnership was indispensable. She was right, and she was wrong. We will discuss what happened next, next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced Written and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with Sashi Bogdanovich, Barbara Boyle, 
Frank Marshall, Peggy Steffens, Fred Ruse, Rachel Abramowitz, and Jules Fisher. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio was edited by Tomika Weatherspoon and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.